The Dusty Allen Show would like to thank our sponsors, Manscaped. Now, I'm someone who takes my grooming very seriously, and the product that I'm loving at the moment is the Lawn Mower 4.0. A reason I love it, multiple, multiple reasons, but the fact that it's got skin-safe technology with the ceramic blade, so I've got total confidence trimming hair off my body from anywhere from the moustache to below the waist. Now, a couple of things that make this trimmer stand out from other ones that I've used is the fact that it's actually waterproof. So you can use this one in the shower. And it's got an LED spotlight, so you can see what you're doing, whatever nooks and crannies you're trimming. And it's also got a wireless charging setup, which plugs directly into USB outlet. Hasn't run out on me once, but why would it? Because it can last up to 90 minutes fully charged. And it's also got various size trimmer guards to get that particular length of cut. I've taken on the road multiple times and it hasn't let me down yet. So if you're thinking of a gift for that person who takes their grooming seriously and likes to keep things convenient and efficient, then snag them a Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. And you don't have to take my word for it because there's much more famous people than me that have plugged these things and rate them as well. So you know it's good. Now, if you follow my Instagram, you know that at times I've had a beard, moustache, some weird flavor saver setups and the lawnmower takes care of all this sort of stuff so head to www.manscape.com and chuck in the code dusty nuts for 20 percent off that's d-u-s-t-y-n-u-t-z for 20 percent off and it's also free shipping so you can sort out that gift for the person in your life who takes their grooming seriously on this episode of the dusty allen show i caught up with the one and only charlie dark I swear if there was a Jedi Order on Earth, that this man would be at Yoda's level. As an only child of immigrant parents from Ghana, West Africa, the ever-wise Charlie grew up on the tough streets of South London. Bust into the posh schools, Charlie quickly learned that he didn't fit into the regular boxes that society had predetermined for him. So he set about creating his own narrative. And with some influence from his cousin after his 13th birthday, his life changed forever. Thanks to music, which Charlie credits as saving him. What followed is an incredible life that goes from being bullied at school, dealing with and understanding racism, being surrounded by rule breakers and punk culture, to becoming a DJ and touring Australia on big day out tours with the likes of the Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth. We also chat about the somewhat second coming of Charlie when he discovered running and then how he remixed the idea of a run club to found Run Dem Crew. He shares how we started running in high tops and basketball shorts to then discovering the purity of running and the parallels between running and life. One of my all-time favourite convos, you'll laugh, you'll learn and you'll reflect in this absolute cracker of a chat. There are some great life lessons in this one. You're going to love it. So come on in. The water's great. Listening to the Dusty Allen Show. Welcome to the Dusty Allen Show. Charlie Dark, welcome to the Dusty Allen Show. <laughs> yes, my friends, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, I'm working on some, uh, yeah, to get it. I need to probably do a new like intro or uh, something like that. So yeah, I'll maybe even just cut that. Maybe it might use your voice, mate. We'll organize the uh, the royalties yeah. or something like that. So yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Can you hear me? Okay, I can hear you loud and clear, mate. Yes. Okay, wicked. Good. Yeah. No, I do just working with the uh, with the the basic setup here. Just uh, you know, looking to you know building building as we go, mate. With all the uh, 
pretty much yeah, me I've... is is all the you know half the gear some sort of an idea of what i'm doing here. <laughs> i've got the um roadcaster myself so um i'm familiar with its weird and wonderful ways yes and i i'm often a, a stickler and you'll you'll see this over different different episodes is that Want to, you know, make, make, wanted to make sure that audio quality was was premium at all times. So to realise these yeah. days when you're, when you're at the mercy of Zoom, there's nothing that you can really substitute for being, you know, in a uh, in a studio. Yeah. And I would love to be yeah. doing this with you in person, but we'll just have to do the next one in person, mate. When I uh, exactly. when I get overway, or if you get back uh, get back down under. Well, <laughs> the, so when 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 we first met, going back a couple of years ago, was that your first time to Australia? No, that was my third time right. to Australia. Yeah, that was my third time. And um, the third and best time. Yeah, perfect. That's what we want to uh, want to hear. What was, the, yeah. what was the first time like? Was that for, for work or you, were you yeah. uh, performing? Yeah, the first time I came to Australia, um, I was performing. I was part of a um, Moax Records tour. That had that was part of a really big festival that I think was it was a summer fest. It was like an Australian kind of summer fest vibe. It was um, myself, the Beastie Boys, Sonic Youth, um, the Foo Fighters, a whole load of other like kind of massive rock bands. I was going to say yeah. Like, so it's basically it's all your unknowns, you know, people that they'll you know that no one's ever heard of there. Some of those exactly. Names drop, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, I just kind of fell in love with Australia. I just thought it was a really amazing place, very unusual, really interesting people, amazing food, great what, weather. What time was this? Was this like... Uh, so it was like, really good. Like, was it late 90s, early 2000s? This, this was late 90s, um, and it would have been... We, we arrived in your summertime, so it was our winter time. Yep. Yeah, well, that's yeah, yeah, that's pretty much festival season here. Yeah. And I'll yeah. actually need to, it reminded me, I'll need to, when you mentioned like Foo Fighters, I'll need to send you another podcast called, are you familiar with the Big Day Out? Festival? That was the festival, yeah. You played the Big yeah. Day Out? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Mate, yeah. Well, they've just done a podcast on inside the Big Day Out, like from where it okay. started you know yeah. the the highest of highs and then how it all all came crashing down so i'll flick that one yeah. to you uh to you Thank afterwards you. mate um as as i've said you know to those who tune into this i i love having every guest on the show but particular having charlie dark on the show i was probably quite nervous and i was so organized <laughs> and we even had to push it back an hour. i had more time to repair and i'm frantically like putting down notes but <laughs> i feel like if there was a an order of humans you'd be a jedi you know like that's just Thank you bring yeah you, the... yep pop the uh pop the hood on mate you know and i feel like you'd be pretty handy <laughs> with the with a lightsaber <laughs> I'd, and prior to prior to meeting you i i knew that you'd be a good guy you know through the circumstances oh, nice. that we met through, yeah. but just had no had no idea of how fascinated i'd become with you and i say that you know not in a not a weird weird sort of way no no not at all man like not at all. A, you know, uh, like a, like a runner, um, a you know a musician, and uh, you know a founder of like a, of a run crew, all sorts of things. And to to get it back, I suppose I'd love to go back to the start. Yes, and I remember you know some things you know I've sort of picked up and 
through through the research. So you were an only child, correct? And I, in I your own words, child. you may not remember this, but you basically what I'm going from here is like you wrote a bit of a we did a who am I at the at the event. So I've basically kept that because <laughs> I knew it would come in handy another day. So yeah, you were a um, you're an only child growing up. Yes, I definitely am. I'm yeah. an only child um, of African immigrant parents to the UK. Well, I saw something the other day and I put a note down, I can't remember, but is it West African heritage? Yes. From memory? Yes, my, my parents are from Ghana in West yep. Africa. And um, I grew up in South London, born in 1970. And um, yeah, you know, it's a really interesting time growing up, trying to find your own identity, you know, trying to find out who you are. Well, you, you, you've said yourself that, you're, that you grew up from your, in your words on the wrong side of the tracks for many, uh, many intensive purposes. Yeah, I, I think I kind of grew up in a neighbourhood that at the time was, you know, just a, a bit gnarly, yep. of a gnarly neighbourhood. And I think what happened, you know, 70s and 80s, there was definitely this sense of trying to find your identity, you know, where you fitted in to society. And um, what I soon realised is kind of, you know, I wasn't... You, you know, I wasn't fitting into any boxes. So, is that my dog trying to get in? No, the dogs, they always want to try and come into the room. <laughs> yep. Mine will make an appearance at some stage, you know, banging on the door or crying. Yeah. So, yeah, can relate. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I always say that, you know, my parents are from Ghana in West Africa. A lot of the cultural influences on me as a kid were kind of from the West Indies, you know, in the Caribbean. And I really got into kind of American hip hop culture, you know, but I was studying at quite a preppy school. So I call it the kind of Bermuda Triangle of influences and just trying to find your, you know, just trying to find out where you fit in and trying to find your identity. And um, yeah, just trying to find, you know, a sense of self. And in saying when you, you were feeling like that you weren't sort of fitting in the boxes that might have been like around you, does that force you to then find the places where you you do like fit in or feel comfortable or can relate to others or find things in common? Yeah, I, I, I think for myself, music um, was the thing that saved me and music was the thing that gave me direction. Yep. And that, that's how I discovered myself. I was given a, um, I had a 13th birthday party and um, kind of all the kind of posh kids from school came to our house and um, basically, you know, it was it was an 80s posh kids destruction party. And my cousin, <laughs> my cousin was so kind of appalled at the music that was played that she pulled me aside afterwards and she was so like, look. This is at your house, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was Not at right my right. house. It was at my, my house. And so I should say that basically, like, I've got an assisted place to go to private school. Yep. as a kid in the 80s and it was at the time when they were kind of bussing kids in from the hood you know and trying to diversify the kind of the types of kids that were going to private schools so I was at school with um, Jude Law who you may know as an actor yes he was in the like year below me like loads of people like you know loads of people whose parents are famous or you know had loads of cash and then there was kind of the hood kids were there like you know trying to find our place but um we had this party and, it, you know, all these kids kind of descended on my house. My sister 
my cousin was just like, you know, they're playing Iron Maiden records backwards. <laughs> backwards? You know, trying to f- yeah, because apparently there was like a satanic messages. Oh, yes. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Iron Maiden records. So they kind of turn up. My mum's got this really expensive stereo and they're like, you know, they're rewinding the record backwards, you know, trying to find the satanic messages. It was such a wild party. <laughs> but my cousin was like, look, my cousin was from West London and she's, she was cool. She was like a soul girl. She knew the coup. She knew what was, was going on. Like older than you? Someone you looked up to? Yeah, she was yeah. older than me. She was, I think, 17 yeah. at the time. So she was like, look, there's this whole illegal pirate radio scene happening in London. And she wrote down the frequency of like a station for me to listen to. And so literally the day after my 13th birthday, my life just changed forever. And just so- through music. And so through that, is that like, and I, cause I've seen, seen the movie, you know, like pirate radio and that sort of stuff and like loved it. You know, I feel like at yeah. times some of the music that I really like is I get into things well and truly after it's, you know, trendy or yeah. appropriate to do so. So is it a similar, yeah. a similar thing? Like what sort of music was being played on that frequency? Well, they were playing a lot of kind of black music. Yep. You know, music from America, you know, black music that was being made in the UK, music that just wasn't being played on national mainstream radio. So it's really interesting, like, when I talk to my son, for example, and I'm like, back in the day, boy, <laughs> we used to have one hour of hip-hop a week, you know, and it'd be on yeah. some godforsaken time, and you'd have to stay up. Yeah. And, you know, you, you could tell all the kids who were into hip-hop at school the next day because they'd all be, like, asleep in lessons because they'd be listening to the station. Um, so the pirate stations were kind of... You know, they were a, you know, they were a space where music that wasn't being played on mainstream radio could be heard. Yep. And that was really exciting because also what was happening is you were hearing different types of voices. So it wasn't like, you know, your traditional BBC, you know, regional well-spoken accents. This was kind of, you know, (laughs) the the, the people sounded like you, you know, and they're, and their views and their influences and the reference they talked about were things you could relate to. Yeah. And that was really exciting for me. And it was, it was kind of just like a, a window into another world of possibilities. Yeah. Because up until that point, all I knew was kind of education, 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 education. If you're from Ghana, West Africa, you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor. You're going to continue the family name. You're going to study hard. You're going to go to Oxford or Cambridge. You're going to get a degree, then you're going to do your, you know, my life is very much mapped out for me. Mm. And then suddenly I kind of was like, there's another way. There's another way that I could be part of society that doesn't involve me having to fulfill the will of my parents. And that was what your parents essentially wanted for you then? It was like to, to follow yeah, I mean, that path? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for many what I think people don't understand is like, if you are the son, if you are the child of an immigrant that has moved to another country for a better life, for better opportunities, essentially they've moved in search of a dream. And so because they've made this big upheaval to move to another place, the children are expected to follow, you know, the path that has been set before them because you don't move and uproot yourself from a place that you know to a place that is completely alien to you for your children to then go and tell you they want to become a DJ. 
if you wanted to become a DJ, you could have stayed where we were. Like, what were you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I think a lot of kids in the 80s, actually, we had very limited options of what was available to us, particularly black kids in the 80s, yeah. of what, was, what options were available to us because there weren't many options. And I think for a lot of us, what happened is we suddenly had these epiphanies where we were like, our parents are not that happy. The dream hasn't really worked out. And they're working really, really, really hard to make ends meet. You know, but there's another way. There's another yeah. way that this can, that this can, you know, that this dream can be pursued. Was so we were the rebellious ones. Was that a conversation you had with your parents in to say, look, there's some, like there's something in this. This is what I want. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, but it was kind of, you know, no one was really. You know, I'd always been encouraged to be, you know, to do music. I'd studied the violin, I studied the piano. But well, you're classically trained, aren't you? Unfortunately, I am. I am classically <laughs> trained. <laughs> but um, I don't think that that time, you know, the idea of being in the entertainment industry, well, the only people that were in the entertainment industry were like criminals or, you know, pop stars who were living this very excessive life. So there are no reference points yep. because there is no, there is no Drake, there is no Kanye, there is no Stormzy, there is, there is no one now, unlike now, where you can be like, oh yeah, you know, Mama, you know, you know that guy Drake, yeah. you know, he raps for a microphone, yeah, 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 I want to do that, and they can see the kind of financial success that these people have had, so they know, okay, this is an option. Yep. In the eighties, it's like, you want to play records to people for a living. No, 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 that's not going to happen. You know, yeah. so there was a lot of back and fro and having to fight my corner. Mate, that's my dream. Like, it's, it's unreal to hear that sort of stuff because, you know, you, whenever someone shares their experience, you, you relate it back to yourself. And obviously, yeah. my situation vastly different. I thought it was finish school, you choose, it was basically you choose whether you want to go to university or you want to do a trade. And then I thought I'll go to university because I didn't want to be a tradesperson, didn't know what I wanted to do, and just sort of bumbled my way through it. In yeah, hindsight, yeah, yeah. I would have probably had a gap year. They didn't exist, you know, when I was yeah. growing up. And the 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 point, the one thing that resonated with me, so in my – and I'll always give my town a plug wherever I can, Katanning, you know. Yeah. Hopefully you get to visit there one day. If you're doing a gig in Katanning, yeah. you'll know that the wheels <laughs> have fallen off the career, mate, if you end up, uh, you know, doing a pub gig in Katanning. But you never know. Um, and about eight years ago, nine years ago, yeah, I had just returned from living in Canada and I was the, the guest speaker at my old high school's graduation. And yeah. funnily enough, I just happened to have lost my job at that time. So I was unemployed as I was getting up there to them to speak about, you know, careers and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. And yeah. the thing about Katani is there's a, it's, for a town of 3,500 people, it's incredibly diverse. You've got mm. Aboriginal uh, yep. communities there. You've also got, um, there's some refugees who've been like, relocated there, immigrants, all that sort of stuff. And when the kids were getting up, they would say what they want to do. Some like, oh, I want to travel the world and I want to do this and do that. You know, the usual sort of spiel. And you'd probably have a bit of a look and say, you know, knowing that they come from a small town, probably only 25% are actually going to achieve what they want to yeah. achieve for various reasons. And this, and when I spoke to the principal beforehand, she said to me, look, just so you know, 47% of the class is ESL. So English is a second language. And yeah. uh, anyway, one of, the, one of the 
kids got up and I believe he was a refugee. I don't know where from. I can't recall where from, yeah. but he experienced a traumatic time. Hence, you know, them yeah. being relocated. I think he'd been burnt as a young man. Mm. And uh, he, they said, you know, here is uh, such and such. I can't remember his name and what he wants to be, you know, he's striving. He's, a goal outside of school is to become like a, a council worker or a shire worker. Yeah. And a lot of people would probably scoff and go, you know, not aiming very high, you know, however, and yeah. I, I was one of them at the time. I thought, Oh, it's a bit, you know, boring or whatever. Yeah. Then I, after upon reflection, I thought, you know what, from the situation that this he's come from, he's probably hitting his head on the roof, you know, like that's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, an yeah, and, yeah. and then now I think it's come on and on from that where, you know, uh, these, where kids from any background we say, look, it sounds cliche to say, but anything actually is possible. You don't need to necessarily yeah. do it straight away, but uh, yeah. you know, you um, it, it is, and that was a, that was a real uh, shift in perspective from from me to to consider things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think unfortunately, lots of us are kind of forced into our parents' dreams as opposed to what we really want to do, or we're forced into society's ideals instead of what we, we really want to do and I think this is one of the problems that a lot of young people have because actually they're being told what to do mm. without being actually you know helped to find out what they want to do mm. oh it's it, it's I think it stems from out of school into early early adulthood as well because through mass media you're told basically you need to they're always talking about interest rates and home loans and property and where you can buy it's like if you haven't got married and got the picket fence and the, the nuclear family by a certain time, you're basically doing life wrong, you know? Yeah, and it's just exactly. this big machine that keeps things. Well, they need people to keep buying and selling houses. That keeps the economies afloat and things. And when yeah. people may be different from that or they're not married by the time they're 30, they think, shit, I'm not doing this right, you know? And yeah. what they, and I'm no educator, although I've spent time in schools and I was recently thinking, why are they not teaching financial literacy you know how to read contracts or you know things that you know how to like you know it's not really necessary now because we're not cashless toward, heading towards a cashless so how to count your change or to work out yeah. you know when things are too good to be true or scams and things like actual life skills you know practical life skills are in very short supply and i, I don't and i don't understand why because this is what creates this uneven playing field yep because you have some people who are kind of you know They've grown up with a sense of the value of money and how to invest and, you know, and then there are lots of people, other people who kind of, you know, that's a lesson that's, they, you know, they, they accidentally discover as adults, by which mm. point it's kind of slightly too late. Or it's a painful lesson to learn at the time, you know. It's a very painful lesson to learn at the time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, definitely. I, I know, you know, speaking of investments, you, I'm also aware that, you know, you... Instead of, I think it was like either your, your rent money, your board money, you invested that in a, a record collection that spans to about 30,000 records or give or take? Yeah, kind of, yeah, it kind of fluctuates between like, you know, 10 to 20, depending on, you know, how much patience my partner has with me, you know, because um, <laughs> I think it's kind of, you know, when you live with a DJ, it come, that life comes with a lot of stuff. Yes. And, um, but yeah, I, you know, I, the only reason why I went to university was because at the time in the UK, they were giving student loans to people. Yep. And I think you got around £2,000 a term. 
and you know, so it's like six thousand pounds over the course of the year. And and I was just like, look, I'm going to go to uni because my mum was just like, unless you go to uni, you can't become a DJ. Once you go to uni and you get your degree, I'll leave you alone. You can do whatever you want to do, but your life is mine until you graduate. So I'm like, okay, cool. You know what? I'm going to go. It's a chance to get away from home anyway. Plus, there's this student loan thing, and I can use that to buy records. And how that far, is what I did. How far was it from home for you? Oh, it was just kind of the other side of London. Yep. I completely botched my A-levels. Yeah, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that, unfortunately. Pitulated, <laughs> like botched the whole, you know, I had that classic moment where you go in for the exam and you're staring at the paper and your mind has gone completely blank. And suddenly the enormity of the task ahead kind of sits and hits you. And you're like, if I can rewind time, I'll revise, I promise. I'll be a good boy, you know. And yeah, A-levels went completely to pot. So I, I didn't end up going down the Oxford or Cambridge route that, you know, my whole life had been destined for. Um, and I, But I went to a really great uni that was really, you know, about the arts. And there were just interesting people there. And it was yeah. kind of a really amazing place to be. And I was, you know, I'm really happy that I ended up going to where I went to. I feel like that's you, anything that happens enough. You've got to look at, you know, there's always a, there's a lesson. There's good things that come out of even at the time. You think, well, yeah. you know, I'm not sure if this is the way we're going. Like, you know, or I'd, I'd planned it in my vision, yeah. you know, mind to be all the world had it planned for me as you know, picket yeah. fences and families and things, and you know, working in yeah. uh, you know in the banks or whatever. And yeah, the the concept i only learned probably third year uni and this was a, a tricky time because this is around about early 2000 so 2001 two, three. so the internet wasn't really fully fledged you only if you had like full access at home you're doing great and internet has been notoriously shocking in australia like forever you know it still is now <laughs> yeah. so i wouldn't be surprised if even on this call it's a bit like eh, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and i is in my third year i worked out that it's actually a better way of going about it if you Learn the concept as you go. Don't try and cram study it a week before. And it only dawned on me third year into it. I was like, this is actually, if I show up to the classes, the tutorials, do the work that they prescribe, you kind of don't have to cram study as much. You, you learn the concept as it goes. And unfortunately, it was only yeah. third year. And I, I still don't know how I passed because I went into a statistics exam on 48% and I needed to get 60 to pass. And I'm 100% sure I bombed that last exam but I got a credit <laughs> and passed, yeah. and I was like, I'm not asking any questions. I'll take the bit of paper, and I'm and I'm out of there. Yeah, <laughs> we would have definitely been friends at uni. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it was at the time I knew that I had only had to do enough to pass. Yes. Like it wasn't yeah. prob like probably not a great attitude, but it wasn't like if I got top of the class, wasn't going to really impact my life yeah. that much. Great, yeah. maybe I would have had different work ethics and things, but of you know. I've always just done enough, you know, to, to get yeah. the job done. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, what happened was I suddenly realized that the playing field was not level. The playing field of mm. life was not level. So the unfortunate thing about, you know, going to the top of sec private school, you know, secondary school that I went to is that you kind of get tricked into believing that the world that you are kind of existing in will continue for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, you know, the privilege, the doors will be opening for you too. Yeah. And what I soon realised is that actually that privilege only extends to certain people. So it was almost like coming out of school and starting at the beginning again. 
I, my heart was set on becoming um, a journalist and I'm and I tried to apply to the London School of Journalism and botched that interview up completely as well and and so I just realized I was just like you know what I, I've been trying to kind of go down this path of education when really creativity is what's my, at my calling so I have to be honest with myself and I have to go down the creative path and so that's what I did. It seems like you're sharing this so what do you would you have been like early 20s when you realized this or you know like late yeah, teens? yeah 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 these are was, these are uh, lessons that a lot of people don't realize until it's well into their into adulthood yeah i mean i i think again i i you know fortunate timing i think just the era that i was born and the era that i spent my teens and the early 20s was just a vibrant time where you were surrounded by you know rule breakers people who had been influenced by punk culture you know people who had, who were political yeah. you know and actually people who were you know the berlin wall i remember being at uni and the berlin wall came down and that was what, like was that 1987 no berlin wall i think is it 89 no it's 19 19 let me check that I suppose, yeah, we live in a world where we don't need to wonder. We can look that stuff up yeah. straight away. Yeah. yeah um, the Berlin Wall, I'm sure the Berlin Wall was like around 1990. So when that happened, as I as I look it up here, what, what was yeah. that like? Was it one of those places, like times in your life where you remember like where you were, what you were doing? Yeah, most definitely. Definitely. I can remember kind of being there, watching it on the TV and seeing the wall coming down. I was just like, yo, this is... This is wild. This is what, like, this is amazing. What did that mean? Like, because I, I was uh, 89, it says here. It was up from yeah. 61 to 89. Like, what did that, and I know it's like well documented, people can look it up, but like, what's your personal take on like, what did that mean to, to you to see, to see that happen? That was just kind of like, if you push hard enough, you mobilize enough people and you stay true to your ideals and, and, and the ultimate dream change can happen it was a really really powerful you know moment I think in history yeah. and um you know because if you've grown up watching films and you you know you've seen uh, you know the whole divide between east and west Germany and I think actually we went we went on a school trip at some point to west Germany at some point as well so we kind of seen the wall from the other side um it was just really like wow this is kind of really this is really exciting. And I think also when I got to uni, there was a guy at uni who had the piece of the wall. Yeah, right. In his bedroom. <laughs> One of my flatmates had, you know, turned up with this big, you know, graffiti lump <laughs> of rock. I'm like, what's that? And he's like, it's a piece of the Berlin Wall. I never knew if it was true or not, but, you know, we all believed him. And it was kind of, he had this big lump of rock in his, in his bedroom, you know. And so that, again, was like a tangible like oh man this guy's got a piece of freedom and resistance yeah. in his um and then also nelson mandela got released from prison in, so oh when did when did that happen so um, you know what? look it up go to go yeah. to google and find I'll out go, I'll sure go again. that must be 89 or was it 88 let's have a look and see i i'm i'm, I'm hedging on 88 or 89 Released him in, uh, President F.W. de Klerk released him in 1990 after serving 27 years in prison. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. So 
So again, you've got Berlin Wall comes down, Nelson Mandela gets released. You know, you're like, yo, any, anything's possible right now. Mm. This is like, you know, this, this, you've grown up with this stuff in the background and now, you know, change is happening. I'm like, you know what? It's 1990. I'm going to be out of uni by 1991. I can do anything. That's, that's, that's underrated for how much impact that can have. And yeah. I even see a bit of it now, like in the world that we're in with lots of protests against vaccines, against lockdowns, yeah. against restrictions. And I, I'm no political person. I generally, you know, I definitely acknowledge and sit in my privilege a lot and say a lot of the time, a lot of the things that people in the world are protesting about don't impact me directly. Yeah. So, and I, and I, mm-hmm. and I recognize that. And, but when it's, it's been a talking point for most people in the last 18 months, yeah. And I often say to people, you've shown like, you know, the protests that we had and I was local, the ones I've seen in Australia, you know, we're not really don't have a lot to protest about really, you know, but then you look at what yeah. sort of, you know, life's generally pretty good. I speak for myself, yeah. life's, life's generally pretty good. Then like yeah. what happened in the States, you know, with like George yeah. Floyd and the cultural shift that that, yeah. that did. And a lot of the time people are like, oh, what's the point of, of you know there's a protest here damaging this or doing that and i feel like now you can step yeah. back and have a look and say it was getting attention it got it affected a bit of the change yeah. that it needed to the attention and yeah i've always said to people don't sit and bitch about the government on facebook or twitter or whatever people sometimes will get vote with your feet you know yeah. like yeah. civil disobedience yeah. can have and i don't encourage it by any stretch you know but civil <laughs> disobedience can have its benefits you want to get the government's attention it's not going to be on twitter or facebook it's at the polls or stop paying tax then you'll get their attention you know? yeah but, no, it's definitely definitely yeah but i, I think we've we've grown we've grown up in a you know with a generation of people who kind of haven't really had to protest yep you know they they've they've grown into a life that's pretty easy mm. You know, it was really funny during that, you know, you know, what was really ironic during the whole kind of, the, you know, Black Lives Matter process of last year is as a 50 year old man talking to 20 year old kids. And, you know, and telling them about my experiences and they're like, oh, man, you were soft. You know, if that would be me, I would have <laughs> done this and that. I'm like, dude, it's 1985. You're getting chased home by skinheads. You know, the National Front run London. You're not doing anything. You're just trying to get to your house <laughs> safe. You're not, you're not doing anything. You know, this confidence that this kind of, a lot of the younger generations have, I think is really, you know, it's beautiful because it means that, you know, the protests of the past have been worthwhile because it's allowed freedom for our children and, mm. you know, the people coming after us. But it's very interesting, you know, their perception on what is hard and what is not hard. Adversity, right? You know, what really is adversity? And I think this pandemic has been the first real bit of that that a lot of the younger generation have had. Like, I know a lot of people I know, they're like, oh, I haven't been able to travel. Or I, you know, my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you know, that's that that, that sucks. And, yeah, it's it's funny. (laughs) Yes, I would have done this. I think that's a lot of things in life. If I was... If someone broke into my house, I'd staunch them, you know, or when really... When we're put to it, I think a lot of us who, and myself included, who has not faced a lot of adversity on a broad yeah. scale in my life, I know I'm not about that life of protesting or, you know, I don't want that smoke, no. you know. Yeah. yeah. I remember going to, um, you know, I started Muay Thai lessons a few years <laughs> back. And 
it's so funny because you go in and you just automatically think you're going to be a badass, you know, and then they kind of, they're like, okay, Charlie, so show us your punch. And you, and you know, and then they, you do your, you know, your best movie punch. And they look, you know, then everyone, all the, all the veterans just start laughing at you. Just like, that's not how you, that's not how you punch at all. That's not how you, you know. And, and I think that's really interesting kind of in any martial art that I've done is actually, you know, the way they teach you how what fighting is really like, mm. as opposed to how you imagine it to be like, is very, very, very different. And I think that's a, you know that's a great metaphor, you know, for life is like how life really is, is how do you imagine to it? It pulls apart. Oh, it, it's humbling, particularly you do any sort of like. There's there's three times in my life when I've been shocked. I said yeah. the first one was funnily enough at the big day out was maybe 01, yeah. maybe 01 or 02. Uh, it was a year that Limp Biscuit pulled out. I went to go to Limp yeah. Biscuit, and I think who stepped in was uh, Ramstein. And okay. I loved their stuff, you know, growing yeah. up. And I thought, I'll just, you know, hadn't been to a lot of gigs. Like, first gig I think I went to was like a Blink 182 or um, yeah. uh, The Offspring, something like that. Anyway, Went to, went to this big day and I thought, oh, Ramstein's there. I'll just wander on down into the pit, see what that's like. And it's the first time in my life I realised you have absolutely no business being in there whatsoever. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, I couldn't breathe. It was, yeah, it was yeah. shocking. And yeah. after and since then, I, I once signed up to do a charity or corporate boxing <laughs> event. And yeah. it was going okay. I was like, yeah, it's, you know, and then found out that one of the loneliest places in the world is in the ring when you're sparring and someone's hammering on you. And you can, it's not about throwing a punch. Don't even worry about that. I couldn't even get my hands up to defend myself properly. He's, and he, this guy's just like, it's like one of those toys, like, dirt, dirt, and my head's just like rocking yeah. back, like flat out. Yeah. And yeah, once again, realized like I don't like getting hit in yeah. the head nor do i actually like hitting anyone else in the head <laughs> yeah. as well yeah. so yeah. but then yeah. and I, the bloke who rocked me with a right which was the last time i ever got i said yeah look no nah, this is this is not for me i yeah i hit him a couple of times got into good ones he just looked at me like he was hungry for more like he loved it and i was like that's you can have that mate that's all for you yeah 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 i mean i i always say to people is like there are some people that love fighting yeah. they absolutely love it and it's kind of, you know, I, I, I kind of admire those people, you know, yeah. just like, but I'm not one of those dudes. I definitely not. I'm a peace and love guy. That's me. <laughs> those kids growing up who were always in fights, never got hurt. And so they just enjoyed it, like fighting for they fun. They just loved it. Yeah, they just loved it. And it's kind of, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's in, I mean, I think it's really interesting how movies, films, culture, society can influence your way of thinking mm. and almost give you a full sense of security. Oh. And um, it, it, and it just kind of creates problems along the lines because it's not reality. No, not at all. The no. you know thinking that mainstream you know movies are a bit of violence that you can get punched in the head ten times and get up and shake it off and like you're right to go. No, it hurts so much. Yeah. You know, or the, like... the these I'm the worst to watch a movie with now because I actually subscribe to this YouTube channel. It's called Everything Wrong With and it points out yeah. faults in movies, like plot holes, you name it. Yeah. And I'll be watching this movie. It might be like a Mission Impossible style thing. I'm like, these they've got these blokes in there who are like the crack shooters. They're like, you know, best in the world. All of a sudden, they can't shoot an automatic weapon to hit the main character, you know, for about five <laughs> yeah. minutes straight. I'm like, well, that's convenient. Or, yeah. 
even I think it's played into, you know, I'm a bit of a, I'm a hopeless romantic. I believe in someone's like, oh, if you show the the sweeping, generalizing, you know, display of affection that the, the girl will will like you in the end and stuff. And doesn't really quite like that, you know. They're just like, no, thanks, it's mate. Perfect. That's I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being a parent taught me that it's not like the movies. <laughs> it's so not like the movies. Yeah. So Maybe like that, movies. that could be your book, the title of your book. So it's not like the movies. Yeah. You know? It's not like yeah. the movies. Definitely not. <laughs> well, mate, um, I like talking about, you know, something I wanted to, to chat to you about, and this is from the, yeah. you know, something I found out about to you, like one of your pet peeves is bullies and bullying. Yes. Yes. And does that stem from just being like an observer or being subjected to it? Is like growing up, where does that, and don't get me wrong. I know most people probably don't like bullies and that thing, but I know there's probably some people who either were or are, yeah. are, are dismissive of it. Like, oh, it's just yeah. people like, you know, mucking around. Like, where does that come from? Yeah. It comes from school days, just being bullied at school, at all of the various different schools that I went to, even being bullied at university but in a different kind of way. And I'm going to talk about, you know, that way. Um, But being at school, again, you're at school, it's the 80s. And, you know, I I kind of, it was hard being a young kind of black kid growing up in South London at the time. National Front is still really, you know, prevalent. Can you explain a a bit more on the National Front? The National Front Front were like, they were kind of like, um, you know, they were kind of like, uh, you know, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, yeah. kind of anti-immigration, you know, super white power, very working class kind of movement. Um, and you know, there were a lot of protests, you know, they would protest, you know, and march through, you know, predominantly kind of neighbourhoods of colour. They would harass people, they would firebomb you know, they, so like they a were terrorist just kind of, organization. Yeah, they were kind of like a terrorist organization, but they were, you know, pre-terrorist organizations. Yeah. And, you know, and it was kind of quite hard and slightly dangerous because actually you were getting chased home from school. Then you had the kind of harassment from the police as well. You know, during the 80s was like there was a thing called the sus laws where it's kind of the police were really abusing their powers of stop and search. Um, And so, you know, at school, it was quite common for people to racially abuse you in school. It was just kind of quite normal. You know, in fact, you know, even, you know, teachers would just kind of racially abuse you with banter because it was just normal. You would turn on the TV and you'd have comedians who were kind of, you know, by nowadays standards, you were like, it's actually unbelievable that they were allowed on TV to kind of have the acts that they had. But again, you know, obviously it was a different time and I can understand, you know, why things were, you know, the way they they were, but it was still a very tough time to grow up with. And in the school I went to, I think there were like four, five or six kids of colour in the whole time I was there. So again, you just kind of feel like an alien because you kind of, you don't, you're not seeing people like yourself. Then you go to uni and then you get bullied around love. It's a different type of, you know, when you go to uni, invariably what happens is you meet someone that you really like, but then you, for the first time in your life, you have to deal with competition. 
you know. I, and I always say to my son, it's like, at some point in your life, boy, there's going to be a new kid who arrives in town who's going to take your girl and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. You're just going to have to accept it. It's just part of the thing. That's rough. It's part of the rites <laughs> of passage. It's rough. You're going to cry. You're going to be upset. There's nothing you can do. So, um, so I, I grew up being, you know, surrounded by people who were bullies. And then actually the music industry as well is full of people who like bullying people. So, you know, it, 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 for a long time, it was kind of, it just kind of felt like you were always having to look over your shoulder. There was always something, always someone trying to keep you back from your, you know, from your dream and the path that you wanted to follow. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like bullies, because ultimately what I've learned as I've got older is a lot of people who, you know, are bullies have got some secret reason inside mm about what you know either weakness or vulnerability which makes them act in the way that they do so you know i think there's kind of a lot of work that can be done because it's horrible to be bullied it's mm. absolutely horrible it's horrible to sit in a classroom and have people throwing things at you or making comments about you or you know emptying the contents of your bag or generally kind of threatening you with violence or spreading rumours about you or just making your daily existence horrible. Uh, it's re And it's really jarring on the soul and, and it wears you down. That's another thing I think that people don't realise, like eventually starts to wear you down to the point where you actually, you no longer want to go on. Yeah. It, that, that stuff, like I've, I've, I, I hate bullying too. I've never been subjected to it. I was in, at yeah. school, you know, obviously in a, in a majority being a, being a white yeah. kid yeah, and all just things like, I feel like my learning journey has been pretty steep over the last, you know, 20 years about what's right, what's wrong. Yeah. And I'm not going to yeah. say I stood up for kids who were getting yeah. bullied in school, but I would see it. It wouldn't feel right. Yeah. And I often would do things. I, I'd call it like deflecting. I draw attention to myself instead of like the kid, so it's yeah. like so I'm not yeah, yeah. seen to be sticking yeah. up for him, but it's like it's like you know you're waving the yeah. flag at the bull, the red rag over here, like, oh yeah. come and you know do something over here, and and yeah. spent some time working in schools in Canada teaching cricket clinics and Aussie rules footy clinics and things, and yeah. when you spend enough time in schools, you see how mean kids can be, and it's often it's funny like what led me to do it like some of that work is I actually was had a job as a phone salesman selling an anti-bullying program to principals in Ontario. <laughs> that was, that was a tough gig. It was called the power of one and, you know, talked about, you know, bystanders and all that sort of thing. So yeah. It's actually not bad. I hated selling it, man. Like that was when you just, you know, you're really looking to, to get any work you can. However, yeah. the things that you, you'd explain is like the fact is, you know, you bystanding, you, you're just as culpable in those sort of things, but yeah. you know, we need yeah. to give, anyone like the tools to be able to, to step up and, and do something about yeah. it. And yeah. you hit the nail on the head because it doesn't just stop with kids in school. Like these days, like there's always, I find if someone's at work or socially or your sports team, whatever, acting like a, you know, a bit of a jerk, you know, and now I think there's generally a reason they're either insecure, they're sad, they're upset, they're angry about something. And it's actually nothing to do with you. It's just their way of doing. It. And I think, I say this all the time. I reckon there's very few, some, but not many people on earth who get up in the morning and go, you know what? I want to try and piss off as many people as I can today. Yeah. yeah and no, that's definitely. just their way of, of doing yeah. it, you know? And 
yeah. I take that as like you go through life a bit of common sense and compassion and you can generally decipher those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I understand it now, you know, a lot more than I did then. And even, you know, around racism, I, I understand it. I understand why people, you know, are racist. Mm. And I've had, you know, I've had some great conversations with people who are actively, you know, racist kind of card carrying people. Mm. But actually you get into a conversation with them and you have some really, you know, amazing conversations. sorry you go no 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 i just kind of you know we're just saying that it's kind of i think conversation is really good and sometimes i think what can happen is because you think or you know a person is a certain way you don't even bother to have the conversation so you don't even ever find if you've got any common ground or why that person has you know the views that they have the area that i you know that i I live in East London and when I first moved here, it was like, you know, pretty super racist, a lot of kind of hardcore old school English flying your flag outside your house, world cup or no world cup, the flag stays up. And um, I had a really amazing conversation with one of my neighbors. Um, and he was telling me about the first time, cause he grew up working in the docks as a boy. And he was telling me how, you know, I think in the forties, the first time he ever saw a black sailor. And I was kind of like, I was just, you know, it was a really fascinating story. And I was actually like, I was just thinking, of course, because there are people who that's the first, you know what I mean? Like, imagine what it's like to see like the first black person you've ever seen in your life. Uh. You're obviously going to be, you know, it's like anywhere where you go anywhere where people are different from you. It's obviously going to be a bit of wonderment, a bit of fear, because that's just how society naturally is. And that was a really interesting conversation for me, because I was like, I've never really thought about that, you know, in that way. That's the that's where a lot of you know connections can start. It's like the me too's when you actually have the conversation and get past the face value stuff. So I'm just going to treat this person as an equal, as a human, have a bit of a chat, and it's like, oh, you know what we we drink the same beer or we go to the same yeah. or whatever it may be. And yeah. some, there can be some good things on the other side of, of that. And I'm guessing, does it lead to a less stressful life when you can understand things, you might not agree with them and learn to live a life where you're not going to agree with everyone, but you can accept people. Yeah. I think, you know, for myself, I used to teach in prisons. Yeah. Right. And young offenders institutes and kind of people referral units and that completely flipped my idea on many, you know, preconceptions that I had of people. Because the thing that got me about prison is you've got this idea that prison is going to be like, you know, like the movies. And then you get there and you're seeing people, you know, they look like your teacher from school, like, you know, your next door neighbour. They look so normal. You know, and there's something really interesting. You know, you talk to a kid who's in prison and they're like 15 and they're doing like a 10-year stretch. They look like butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. Mm. Like you're a child, like, you know. And that was just, you know, that was really interesting finding, you know, how people kind of get into the lives they lead and make the life decisions that they make. And, um, yeah, you know, it's kind of... um, Life can be... is becomes even more interesting when you start having conversations with people who you feel 
who society tells you you have nothing in common with. Mm. Yeah. That's why I love Australia. Because Australian men are different. They're like, they are a breed onto their own. In, In what way? It's just, it's just, it's just different. It's just kind of, you know, old school Australian dudes are fascinating dudes to talk to because this their perception of life is just so different and it, you can learn a lot, you know, and it's kind of one thing I really love about Australia. And that was the thing that really got me about the first time I went is this feeling of kind of people just being like, you're different from me, but we found some common ground and now we're brothers for life. Mm. And, he, and and it's, it's the kind of friendships that you form they're different from any other friendships you form with people in other parts of the world. Right, that's a, that's one of the nicest things I think anyone's ever said about uh, Australian people. <laughs> it's really true. It's really, really, really true. It's, it's Australia is like an amazing. It's an amazing place. I always say to people, it's like you know you you've got to go to you got to spend a day in prison. You got to go to a berth. Spend time in Australia. So a few, a few extremes there, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. Spend some time in Australia, and um, it's, it's just a you know, it's a wild place, man. It's well, and who knows? Maybe, maybe that's why, like you know, with a lot of fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation, you know, uh, Australians as we know it, you know, immigrant yeah. Australians. That's where we, you know, yeah. where all the the white people came from, you know, on prisons, yeah. you know, stealing the yeah. stealing the loaf of bread and stuff. And it's it's yeah. interesting. I've always thought. And up until a, a point in my life, you know, we've been very casually racist in Australia, like similar yeah, to what you were yeah. saying when you were yeah. back in school, like whether it be teachers, yeah. just accepted, like, you know, nicknames that are given to people that are, are done yeah. what many people think out of affection. It's like, well, you yeah. know, not, not really. Yeah, yeah. And just because it's, yeah. it's accepted, you know. And yeah, yeah. Even like yeah. a lot of people who are near and dear to me still, you know, uh, rattle off a few things that now I like yeah. raise and I'm like, well, you know, but the, yeah. it's just, it doesn't make it right, but that's how it's how it's done. And like you said, you can yeah. understand where it comes from, and you know, I think people's actions often will speak, you know, uh, a lot louder yeah. than their than their words. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I think society at the moment is very quick to jump on people for their opinions without taking time to think why does this person think in this way? You know. It, and 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 not doing anything to kind of bridge the differences, mm. and this kind of idea that basically we should all think the same, believe the same, act the same. No, that's not how society is. So when I you know encounter people who kind of have got their prejudices against me, I always try and find some common ground before I dismiss them. Mm. You know, because ultimately, I mean that's one of the things that running taught me. You know, because when I first started running, you know, there weren't a lot of like people of colour out there running marathons in particular. And I can remember, you know, you'd be on the start line and people be, you know, looking at you and you'd, you'd feel really self-conscious and a bit out of place. But come mile 22, when your legs are falling off, that person that you were giving the death look to or who was giving you the death look, asking why you're there, that's your brother for life. And it's like, you're going to get to the finish line together. So, yeah. you know, I think... Um, Life is not as black and white, cut and dry as people would like to make it out believe. And I think that's one of the things I think, you know, some of the younger generation maybe have grown up with this idea that 
there's this idealistic way that the world should be that's never going to be real mm. and, and yeah. that's what i th- yeah i think that's what trips you up in later life well, you see the news all the time it's like still news like someone says something racist sexist homophobic and we're all like <gasps> and i look at it as yeah, like were- that's well, are they a human check well you know that's what people are going to do you know why is and look i'm not going to say why is it news because you know bad behavior needs to be called out 100% yeah most definitely definitely however definitely. you know this this act of like surprise and shock it's like you know let's let's be yeah. real you know it's yeah. wherever you put people in a spot whoever they are they'll find a way to, con- to have a conflict in some way yeah, yeah most definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely and I, you know and I, I think obviously people's you know, society is changing and people's opinions and views and beliefs should change mm. as the society changes. You've got to keep up with the times. But when I people meet people who've got some old school, you know, values, I don't freak out mm. because I expect it. I'm like, well, you're 90 years old. It's kind yeah. of grown up in a village in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I'm the first black guy you've ever met in your life. So... You know, if I'm driving through your neighborhood in some super expensive car and you're looking at me like I'm about to do something, I expect it. Cool. Brilliant. Yeah. Let's continue with the conversation. You know, I like to I like to spend time in the outdoors. You know, a lot of times you go to a place and it's like you are like the alien dude who just walked into the pub and everyone stops and looks at you. All right, mate. Cool. Let's get the drinks in. Let's get the party yeah. started. You know, it's kind of but that's just my, you know, my you know, people often will say like, man, I don't understand how you can be in that situation and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, you know, because it's all, every, every, every day's a learning experience. Yep. You know, Spot and on. yeah, every day's a learning experience. And that's kind of, I think sometimes what happens is we don't allow ourselves to experience something because of the own preconceptions in our mind. You know, so if I think about yoga, for example, and I'm a yoga teacher. Before I started doing yoga and before I started teaching yoga, I was just like, man, you know, it's kind of like yoga's, like, you know, for people who are like this and I can't be part of it. And if I go, everyone's going to be looking at me and, you know, I'm going to feel really out of place. I start going to yoga and everyone's, everyone's so concerned about not falling off their own mat mm. that they're really not, they haven't got time to be looking at what you're doing, but you've walked into the space with this idea that all eyes are going to be on me when really they're not, you know? And if they are cool, well, I'm here and I'm taking up space and, you know, onward and forward we roll. But you're spot on like about, about yoga, you know, particularly with guys. Yeah. yeah. I said in one of my my previous podcasts with Donna Buchanan, good friend of mine, yoga instructor from Perth. And especially with men, how there's a, basically comes in and no one wants to look bad. Right, so yeah. that'll stop them going. Yeah. And I, yeah. I what's that? What's the difference between blokes who play golf? Because I know some blokes who roll up every week and are shocking at golf and look bad, but they keep turning up. You know, yeah. and maybe yeah. it's because yeah. uh, the the girls are there and stuff. And yeah, yeah, the and I mean, yeah, I mean, I can understand things that are new being intimidating, mm. but I think that's when you kind of have to draw on your bravery resources. You know, yeah. a lot of people talk to me about having imposter syndrome and I'm like, well, that's normal. It's normal to be in a new environment and feel slightly out of place. And that's OK. You can either allow that to be used against you or you can use it to your advantage. 
that's another thing they should be teaching young people. So you're going to experience these yeah. things, get used to the discomfort and stuff. And yeah, yep. the, uh, you, the, and I think about the times where, you know, and I, I hope everyone in their life has a situation where they can, they can be in the minority or know what it feels like to be like in a, in a, in a very extremely different environment. Like your yeah. situation reminded me of a time I spent in Chicago uh, visiting a friend of mine and she, um, African-American woman lived in yeah. the South side. She goes, yeah, yeah, just come and stay at my place for the weekend. That's great. Bring your mate. Awesome. Yeah. So I drove in and you know me, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty pasty, you know, uh, yeah. red hair. And I didn't see a white person for probably 10 blocks, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And anyway, she goes, just pull up out the front, jump out of the car. She goes, I'll be down in a second. And I like got her. And I in no way felt unsafe, but I was just like, yeah. I'm literally very quite different here, you know? And yeah, yeah. and anyway, so had a cup of coffee and she goes, I've got to go to work. And she was uh, working in like the, the, the club scene around there. She was yeah. uh, running, managing a, a couple of bars. She goes, go to this bar. You meet some of my friends of mine there. You have a great time. Walked into yeah. this like hole in the wall bar, and it was the time, that that was the time in my life where literally everyone just it's like the music stopped and everyone just turned around and they looked at me as like, "Blokes, blokes lost." He's like, yeah. you know, and yeah. I was like, she wouldn't set me up. You know, anyway, I just walk in with my mate, and he's like, "Oh, I don't think no." I guess maybe we'll just wait in the cafe around the corner. I said, no, no. Like, and there's an element like it was me being brave. And, and I yeah. stressed, didn't think I was going to come to any harm, but it was just, I was yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. And I sat down and it probably helped that I was Australian in that situation because I might have been the first Aussie that they'd come across, the yeah. people in the bar. And anyway, so you could buy like a Mickey of uh, what they have, like Southern Comfort and they just give yeah. you the mixes for free. And in the end, that's one of the most special moments I've had because the most yeah. friendly people You'll ever yeah. meet. They brought out free food. They go, have you tried this? And that was, the lady called it soul food. She goes, I've got some soul yeah. food for you to try. I was like, hey, you know, that's <laughs> fine. We'll try it. They were trying yeah. to teach me how to do some uh, dance move called like the drop step and stuff. And yeah. and I remember, I'll never forget this dude comes out and he he's like, he goes, hey, he goes, I heard you're from Australia. I'm like, yep. He goes, man, he goes, that's great, man. He goes, that's great. <laughs> And he goes, you, uh, you go, you heard of that, uh, that guy, the crocodile hunter. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he goes, I got snakes at my place, man. He goes, I got snakes. And I'm like, okay, buddy. Like, that's cool. And he's like, I got one of them, um, one of them, uh, and there's shouts across the bar. I was like, Hey baby, what's that snake we got back home? And he's like, <laughs> it's a python. He goes, yeah. He goes, I got some of them pythons, man. He goes, Hey, <laughs> seriously, if you're in town for a while, we can come back to my place and, you know, Shit, we can jump around. And I just yeah. was, the, the, this guy was arguably the friendliest person like I've, I've yeah. ever met in my yeah. life. And and finding finding common ground, like you said, yeah. on those. And not yeah. that it wouldn't have mattered if we did or we didn't and stuff because, yeah. and that was, like I said, I'll chalk it down to another life lesson. You don't judge books by the covers and, you know, yeah. you give, yeah. you, everyone's going to give you a, give you a chance to, to be accepted, you know? So, yeah, that was. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's, <laughs> I love experiences like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like some of the best times you have are when you are the alien in the room. <laughs> the best, you know, the best, best times. Those are, imagine, those are the moments you really remember. Yeah. Can you imagine when someone, in, if it happens in our lifetime, like the first alien rocks up and someone's going to, you know, we're probably in a situation where, you know, I hope it doesn't, you know, land in the States, they'll probably bloody shoot it or something like that. But 
you know, I, I hope that there's some good, positive new experiences or discoveries that we make in the next little bit of things that we just haven't seen before. And there's that yeah. sense of yeah. wonder, fascination and intrigue, you know? Yeah, really important. Those are, yeah. those are good, actually, um, principles to live life by. Mm. Wonder and intrigue. Yeah, absolutely. Really important. Wow. I didn't know you played cricket. Oh, badly, badly. Mate. I didn't know you were a cricket guy. I didn't know you were a cricket guy. <laughs> so teaching these cricket clinics, once again, talking about being like in a, in a different environment. So in Toronto, have you, have you been to Toronto? Yeah. So the, there's a suburb, I think it's called uh, Brampton. And yeah. the huge population is uh, like a Sikh population. Yeah. Yeah. So we're rolling into these schools where we're in green and gold shirts and stuff. We're teaching cricket clinics and so footy, fine. You know, that's, that's my jam cricket. And these kids, they think just because we're Aussie and because we're wearing green and gold that we've played for Australia, they go, Oh, do you know like yeah. Adam Gilchrist or Brett Lee or stuff? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. Him. I, you know yeah. and I, I had to make up a story that I was just a middle level cricketer. I'm a horrible cricketer, like shocking. <laughs> and yeah. Anyway, these kids who are like 14, 15, they go, oh, yeah, can we bowl to you? I'm like, sure, that's fine. They were whipping them past my throat and I didn't even see them. I'm like, okay, just hand them. I want to give someone else a turn and stuff. Like, you've never seen a human more out of their element. In the, than, <laughs> and so, you know, I couldn't let them know that yeah. I, was, I was no good. So, yeah. <laughs> you you play much cricket? I played a little bit when I was at school. And it's a sport that I've always wanted to take up again in later life. But I went to school with some great cricketers. Who? I can't remember their names, but basically they went, you know, there's a school called Millfields, um, which is like a sports specialist school. And they kind of, you know, they were at our school for like two, three years and then they got shipped off to Millfields. And they were like, you know, I think it's one of those things whenever, when you were at school and you play a sport with people who are destined to really make it, Mm. you can see the gulf in technique, experience, attitude. And you just, and then you, you're just like, you know what? I can't, like this guy's taking this cricket thing to a next level. Yeah. You know, they're playing with no fear. They're batting it around the pitch, wherever they want to do. <laughs> they could do anything they want. You know, it's like the magic with the bat, magic with the ball. And my school had a lot of really amazing cricketers and really amazing footballers. Yeah. And so you kind of soon realise, you're like, these guys are on the next, this is a next level, the way their minds think. And again, you know, it's when you go, I think with sport now is very different because you've got YouTube and you've got social media. So it's easier to learn techniques, skills to make you better. But in the 80s, when, you, you know, no one really knows what they're doing. But when you meet people who've got like natural talent, you're just like, oh man, I'm never going to be as good as that. So my cricket days, you know, were swift and in between. Hockey is my jam. Field hockey. Yeah, I love field hockey. Yeah, right. I'd really like to, you know. Wouldn't have yeah. picked that, mate. But I, I can also yeah. see you, you know, coming on bowling some little off spinners, you know, you know, Charlie oh, Dark oh, yeah. putting a few little yeah, tweakers yeah. in there, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like with a, with a kind of crook hand, like <laughs> <laughs> really get that get that finger spin yeah. happening, mate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, have you ever seen um there's a really amazing cricket film about the West Indies cricket team when they came to the UK? No. I find, I'm gonna find the link and I will let you know. 
Yes, I'm going to um, write that down here because I don't want amazing, to. I'd love to watch that. An amazing, amazing cricket film. Yeah, about the West Indies tour. It's great, 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 great. Well, I'm going to. I'm. There's someone I'd love to chat. Uh, there's a kid that I went to school with. He went on to play professional football and stuff. Mark Williams is his name. Okay. And he is the only person I, back then I saw who it was just light years better than every kid at every sport. Wouldn't have mattered yeah. what he tried. Like, you know, so Aussie was footy, cricket, basketball, yeah. the main sports that we played, golf, no problem. Yeah. And yeah. I, I would love to have, have a chat with him to say, what does it feel like to know that you're so much better than, uh, than all yeah. the other kids and yeah yeah I mean I think now obviously there's a pressure that comes with that mm. I remember I did some work for Arsenal Football Club and there was a guy who brought his 10 year old in for like a scouting trip and they were like he's too old you know we're signing too seven old. year olds yeah they were like we're signing seven year olds now and that was a real like wow man like you know and like friends of mine who've got kids who are kind of, you know, at academies and stuff who are young, they can't do any school sport in case they get in, injured. Uh, so that's really interesting. You're like, you know, you're eight, nine years old and because you play for an academy, you can't play for your school football team. You can't take part in PE. You know, you've got a contract, you're signed up. It's like, it's really weird. It's a slippery slope, mate, I think, because there's other thing you miss out on other life skills, you know, who knows what else you might be good at. And, just yeah. opportunity to grow and develop. And I, yeah, I think yeah. And, that and sort of stuff is too young. Yeah. And you have to be, I mean, I just think that basically people don't realize, you know, it's easy to sit on your sofa when the game is on and <laughs> shout abuse. He's rubbish. So rubbish. The team plays so rubbish, you know, because there's all these like armchair managers now. It's kind of yep. never kicked a football in your life, but you're really good at FIFA on the PlayStation. So now yep. you think you can tell the national team what to do but I think people don't realise how good you actually have to be in order to make it as a professional sports person mm. of any level these days you know it's a kind of like that thing when you um, you probably had this with like Louis Lemon stuff where they kind of get the superstar athlete comes in and they're like you know you might go for a run and you know you're kind of like 10 minutes in and you're already kind of breathing slightly heavily <laughs> and you're listening to them and it's like, there's no sound coming out of their body. It's like so easy for them. You're just like, this is so easy. And you just realize it's, it's the next level. Yeah. The, well, you're like cricket's a good one because you watch it on the telly and that's fine. Then I go to a game and I'm sitting square side of the wicket. I can't even see the ball or, the fast bowlers, we know they're fast, but then someone like Shane Warne's bowling them, that would probably still be the quickest ball that I've ever faced, and it's spinning. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's great. It's really great. I, I always remember going, you know, especially like when you watch London Marathon mm. or when you watch any marathon and you see the elite athletes come through, there's always that one kid that kind of is running by the side, like trying to keep up. <laughs> you last like, you know... Doesn't even last for a minute and he's like panting, he's like flawed for the rest of the day. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. Sport, it's great. Really great. Running. Yes. I want to talk to you about now. There's something I actually want to want to show you. Give me, give me one second. <laughs> so you're 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 a runner. Not a lot of people might yeah. know that you're a you're a runner. And yeah. when you mentioned marathon, got me got me thinking. So I'm training for the Melbourne Marathon. It's my first one. And 
up until last week. So I did my first long, longest run I've ever done, 30Ks. And we'll do another couple of those and realise that now I understand why not so many people do them. Because prior to this, I'd be like, oh, I could do a marathon if I wanted to. But, you know, and then I was like, excuse my language. I was like, well, fucking do one then, Dusty. You know? <laughs> and so here I am training, knowing that it's no, no mean feat when I'm working at how to take my gels and how yeah. to taper and actually structure a week of run training instead of just getting out there and running. And yeah. I invested in some actual, like some decent running shoes. And something that yeah. I like to do when I get a new pair of shoes is I like to draw on them. And nice. I just, I write down things that, and these, these were new about five weeks ago and stuff. So they're a bit, they're a bit dirty yeah. now, but I write yes. down things and people that inspire me. And I just want to show you're, uh, you're on there. Oh, no the, way. Uh, that is so cool. So there's Charlie's on there. That little cactus uh, is yep. my, uh, represents just my dog, Arizona, because I like to go yep. running with her. Um, yep. The Squiz Lord, that's uh, Dan Shinners, a really good yep. mate of mine. Uh, I'd yep. love for you to, to meet him one day. He's a ripper. Yep. Next time you're down here, 100%. Yep. That's uh, a mate of mine, my footy captain from Canada, yep. the Skip. Nice. There's uh, nice. one for Matt Willocks there, the Skucks man. Yeah. Yep, and just some tan tan laps, chaps. As you know, that's where we run every week, going around the tan. So that's um, amazing. Yeah, I thought I'd just uh, I'd share that with you. And there's basically things that I think of when I run. Because yeah. another thing that I uh, have have kept is this one. Eee, and nice. the the song I only added one song onto my running playlist, but and it, it's funny when it pops up. It's the uh, the runners high song is it like yes stick man of, of yes of yes, dead yes, press? yes from, yeah from dead press yeah and that one comes on every now and then i think of you i think of like you yeah. know running and stuff and yeah so i wanted to wanted to say thank you oh uh, thank you man thank and, you and, no it's brilliant. um let's let's talk about uh run them crew yes uh i suppose i'd love to i only know like a little and mainly from what i yeah. see through through your channels yeah. How did it start? When did it start? Because I I think it's yeah. it's bloody cool. And I know you've mentioned before, you know, sort of the what it's what it's created for you. But for those listening who don't know a lot yeah. about it, yeah, tell us about it. So Rundem Crew is an organization that I set up around 2006, 2007. And essentially it was my take on remixing the, the, the idea of a traditional running club and remixing it for people who I knew who thought they didn't like running. Um, I'd kind of arrived at a point in my life where I was mentally unfit and physically unfit and quite disillusioned with life. So I started running as a kind of form of trying to maintain my some balance in my mental health and to find myself again because I hadn't been fit since I'd left school. I think like a lot of people, once you leave kind of organized school sport, it's really easy to kind of slip into the slide of, I don't move at all. So um, I kind of started running because I had to, I was kind of, I was training to go, I was, I got commissioned to write a one man show would have box will travel, which was all about my kind of DJ career. And the guy who was directing it, this guy called Benji Reed, who's kind of, you know, a couple of years older than me, has a 12 pack and not an ounce of body fat on his body. You know, he's like in his 50s, but can, moves like a nine, you know, like a 15 year old. 
and we start rehearsals and I'm like very soon realised that I'm very out of breath. I've got no cardio and it's a one-man show. So I'm playing all these different characters. So he's like, bruv, you're going to have to, um, you know, do something about your fitness because otherwise you're not going to survive going on tour and performing this show every night. I didn't want to go to the gym because at that point, it wasn't cool to go to the gym. And the only real gym options that were open were, you know, the heavy, heavy lifting gyms. And I just didn't like the energy in those places. I didn't like the type of people who, you know, could be found in there because they reminded me of bullies. So running was kind of like, this came to me where I was like, well, I've got a massive training collection and running's easy to do. And it's something I can do by myself. It doesn't require me having to organize a team or other people. It doesn't really involve me displaying a skill. So I'm not going to embarrass myself. And if I do it at night, then no one in my neighborhood will see that I'm doing it. So I literally started running at night by myself and I just fell in love with it. I was just like, this running thing is amazing. Like, it's really, really cool. It was almost kind of like I'd found this new drug that no one else knew about that I was doing secretly at night, you know, and lost a load of weight. Just generally felt more kind of happier in my soul. My friends are like, okay, what's this, what, what drugs are you doing? I'm like, no, 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 I'm running. I was like really embarrassed to let anyone know because it was so uncool at that point to admit that you cared about your fitness. You know, I've, I've come from a music industry. I remember, go, you know, you'd go on tour to LA and all the like LA, LA DJs would be like, you know, you go down to breakfast and be like, yeah, just super pumped, man. Just come back from my run. You know, just been in the gym. We'd be looking at them like, what do you mean? Like, you've been in the gym? Why? Because could understand why anyone would want to take care of themselves. You're not a professional athlete. Why are you in the gym? Is that a, is that a UK thing? Because And I, I, I asked that because in Toronto, I met a, a girl came and stayed, a friend of my roommate. She came and stayed for a bit and she's from London and we, I just went for like a jog or something. And she goes, what is it with you Aussies? She goes, you're always exercising. You know, what's with that? Yeah, and yeah, we, we were yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what? And then I thought about it. It's like, is it because, you know, good weather and we can get out and do more and things like that? But yeah, is it yeah. maybe a UK thing? I think, it, I think it was a UK thing. I think it was just this idea that, Fitness is a luxury. We're about hard work. So this idea that you're going to go and spend hours in the gym to be fit was kind of seem a bit like, what's the point? We didn't really understand it. And so only really, you know, you know, in the 2000s, you know, mid to late 2000s, and suddenly like being fit became like a, there was a kudos to being fit. People kind of started to understand it more. And also because you can't be what you can't see. So when you start seeing people like yourself, who are kind of, you know, really getting into fitness, it was very inspiring. But I run them, you know, I, I started running by myself. And then one night I was kind of running by myself. And I, I, I always talk to myself when I run. And I, suddenly all these characters started coming into my head. So we had kind of Fat Boy, The Snail, you know, The Flash, kind of. And these are all the, you know, this imaginary crew of people that I would start kind of talking to yeah, as a way of motivating myself to run, because again, I'm doing it by myself. There's, you know, I've got no one else to rely on. And I just suddenly thought to myself, wouldn't it be really amazing if this was a real thing? 
And um, it, it kind of coincided with a lot of things that happened in my life. And I was working with a lot of young kids who had really low self-esteem. And because they had low self-esteem, they were getting into trouble almost as a way of proving themselves. They were getting into conflict as a way of proving themselves. And I felt really empowered by running. So I was just kind of like, wouldn't it be really amazing if I could introduce running into these young people's lives and try and empower them and make them feel better about themselves through running and also allow them to kind of start exploring London more? Because if you've never been a victim of the postcode war, which is where, you know, when I was growing up in London, it was like you're either North London, South London, East or West. You go to a concert. And they'd, you know, they'd be like, North London makes some noise. And then North London people would make noise. And then that got divided into smaller areas in boroughs. So it's like, if you're from Southwark, make noise. Ah! And then that got divided into areas. And then it's like, if you're from Peckham, make noise. And then suddenly it gets divided into streets where it's like, you know, if you're from Ridley Road, make noise. Ah! But you live on Ridley Road, but you've never been to, you know, Kingston High Street because it's even though you can see that road from where you are. And suddenly what I realised is like a lot of young people that I were working with were being landlocked by their postcodes in their neighbourhoods. And that you don't go out of your postcode because of what fear of uh, bullying, violence, yeah. whatever. Yeah, fear okay. of violence, fear of retribution, fear of something happening to you. It's easier to just stay in the ends, literally on your block that's where you are you're not going to explore you know when I was a teenager I would go everywhere in London I was just like man this is a really amazing place called West London and and the shops are different and the houses are different and yeah let's go let's go and explore and but people a lot I met a young, lot of young people who just weren't doing that so running was a way of kind of safely getting young people from one place to another at the same time gentrification was really starting to pick up its pace in the you know in London and what I realized about gentrification is you know a lot of times what happens is if you move into a new neighborhood you've never really been taught how to make friends with the existing residents no. so if you you know if you go if there are a lot of areas in London that kind of have dramatically changed in the amount of money that's in that neighborhood um the type of people that live there you know it's gentrification and so I was realising that, you know, there are loads of people I know who are kind of like, you know, they weren't born in London and, that, you know, and they suddenly, they're moving into places like Hackney or Dulwich or Peckham and, you know, and with them, they're bringing change. But they don't know how to relate, speak to the residents that were already there. So Run Them Crew suddenly became this way of kind of getting different types of people to come together to explore their similarities, to celebrate their differences and to help each other to be the best that they could be. Essentially, it was like a traveling party. Because people always ask me, they're like, so how did you do Run Them Crew? I'm like, I'm a DJ. Run Them Crew is the exact same principles that I would apply to putting on a party are the same things that I apply to Run Them Crew. So I literally would be like, right, we need some people who are good at barbecue for the post run. Let's get that dusty dude, the Australian dude. Like, they know about barbecue. <laughs> We're going to get them. All right, cool. We're going to need some model chicks in there. You know what I mean? We're going to need some, you know, some people who are going to bring some flamboyancy to the crew. And I, I literally would just be like, I just cherry picked people and bring them up. I'd just be like, yeah, I'm doing this thing, this run them crew thing. 
I think you'd really enjoy it come down. Getting like literally role specialists to come in and do stuff and and yeah, mate, that's incredibly simple but incredibly effective. And that works. It's like any putting any decent initiative together. It's like yeah. you know you you pull in the right people. You got to pull in the right people, and I, that's my thing. It's kind of what I learned from DJing is the best parties you ever go to are the ones where there are lots of different types of people in that party. Mm. Because as a DJ particularly a DJ who will play extended sets from beginning to the end or a DJ who does the warm-up set, you know who starts dancing first. And what I know is cool black dudes from South London don't walk into the like an empty room, you know, put their drink down and start dancing together. <laughs> they're, they're not doing it. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to get your party started, you've got to get some party starters in. And so that's what I did with running. I was just like, running is amazing. It's changed my life. I really feel like it can change the lives of the people that I know and the industry that I work in. What do I need to do to make that happen? So everything about Rundem Crew was deliberate from the choice of the name to the way the logo looked to the night of the week that it was, you know, I was like, it's not going to be on a weekend. It's not going to be on a Monday. But Tuesday, you've kind of got no excuse. You know, it's easy to be like, it's easy to be like, I'm going to gym Monday morning. And then Monday morning comes and you're like, I'm not going to go. But by Tuesday, your week has kind of started. And so, you know, Tuesday was the, you know, was the time. And so, what's yeah. it, what's it become now? Like what's it grown into? Because I did notice the other day, you're on the cover of Runner's World magazine. Yeah, man. And <laughs> finally. <you know, laughs> and I look, I haven't read read the article but I, I saw the caption saying it's a it's that you know a lot has gone into it's been a lot behind the scenes but you're yeah. you're not just you're not just you're not just any runner and also you know you're not you're not an olympic gold medalist or anything like that but you're just uh no, no. You're i a, just love running and i want to share it with as many people as possible because i've seen the positive change that it can bring into people's lives yeah. and the way it can empower people and the confidence it brings into people's lives and the doors that it can open and the opportunities that it can open. Because there's a difference, you know, what I find when people go to the gym, it's almost like you're trying to transform your body physically into something else to make it bigger than it actually really is. But running is a very pure sport that looks at the idea of fight or flight and the ability to be able to run away from a situation is very, very empowering. You know, or the ability to be able to run towards, to confront adversity. It teaches you so many things. And that's what I love about running. I think it's kind of a very, very pure, at its heart, it's a very, very pure sport. And, you know, getting the Runners World cover, obviously when I first, I've been doing running for 15 years. So every year I'm like, who oh, is this going to be the year? Did I finally get the cover? But actually, it's come at the perfect time. Because post-pandemic, and, you know, we're at a point where people, it's, people aren't freaked out by the idea of running or being in Lycra. Mm. And when I first started running them, it was, I remember going into, like, you know, the running shop, and they showed me the Lycra. I was like, man's not wearing this. <laughs> just like, I'm wearing this. Just like what, really was your, what, was your, what was your first sort of run kit? What did that look like? Well, I was running in basketball 
kit. Yeah. I was like, like I was like running. I didn't know. So I was like, okay, well, they wear vests. Oh yeah, I've got some basketball vests. I wear those, and I've got some basketball shorts and Air Force Ones. You know, I was really like, <laughs> you know, I didn't know, and there were no references because it was very much a closed kind of shop. But I remember kind of the clothes being really tight and green, fluorescent green, and I was just like, I'm not wearing that. I can't wear that. And so that's where the wearing of all black kind of came about. Yeah. You know, I was just like, we're going to choose a neutral colour. And we used to run in mountaineering gear, is what we were, <laughs> is what we used to run in because it it looked cooler. Uh, I I'd, I'd love it for for yeah. Now it's another excuse for me to buy more sneakers. You know. Yeah, like I mean, it's and, kind uh, of now it's a now it's a multi million you know dollar industry, and it's cool to walk around in your lycra all day with your yoga mm-hmm. mat sitting out your bag and to you know, to talk about running, it's cool. There's a kudos that comes to that. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the conversation that has caused that to happen. Do you, do you run in Lycra now? Yeah, yeah, I run in Lycra now. Yeah. I, I even always said, I mean, I never run in shorts, but I, I just saw loads of people I know in New York Marathon running in those kind of, the kind of like cycling shorts. Yes. Yep. I'm like, you know what? I could rock that. Yep. I could do that. I could do that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I love, I love, you know, running's changed my life. It's one of, you know, my life changed, infinitely changed for the better once I put my shoes on and went out the door. I'll never forget at the run immersion where we met, you asked the group a question of what does running actually represent for you? And yeah, never thought about it before and i said i said and i still don't know it just represents freedom for me yeah and yeah. freedom from my my work freedom from yeah. my personal life from my social life just and to get out like like you like to get out and run in like open spaces and it's an emotional thing now because i just fucking yeah. love it you know yeah. to get out there and sometimes i run with music sometimes i don't sometimes i run with my dog I've actually yeah. just started uh, tethering her to my waist and running around like the tan. So it's a work in progress because she's still learning yeah. her, her etiquette. But yeah. yeah, it's such a special thing. What would you? What would do you? Would you offer to someone who you know, says, "Oh, I'm not a runner," who maybe flirts with the idea of running, says, "I'm not a runner." Like, what would you say to that person? Okay, so the first thing I would say is take off your watch. Don't look at it as time or distance related. Look at running as something emotional and how does it make you feel? The first thing I would say to them is go out and walk for one mile. When you come home, write down what you saw, what you heard, what you smell. And then most importantly, how did that walk make you feel? Don't run, don't do it, take a day off. And then go and do the same thing again. Because eventually what happens is your body starts to get comfortable with being outside. It starts to get comfortable with how it, how it feels when it's being physically pushed. And eventually what happens is your brain and your heart will start having a conversation of, you know what, let's try running for a minute. And then walking for a minute. And then running for a minute. And then walking for a minute. And eventually what happens is the walking time starts to decrease and the running time starts to increase. And you're only going a mile. So actually, 
you know, you're kind of changing and ripping up the rule book and what running is supposed to be. Because most people, when they think about running, like, right, okay, I'm going to put my shoes on, going to open the door. And as soon as I step outside, I'm going to be like Michael Johnson and I'm going to be tearing up the streets to impress my neighbours. So they know I'm the man. And actually, that's not what it's about. Look, many of us look at running as a punishment. We look at it as a, you know, an inconvenience. And we look at it as something that reminds us of being powerless at school. And that's the reason why we don't want to do it. Because we know what it's like when, you know, the people who are first, second and third in the school system are celebrated and everyone else is kind of like, ah, you know, Dusty, you're just making out the numbers. Mm. You know, or that idea of kind of my class, you know, everyone else is really fast and I'm at the back and everyone's laughing at me because I'm at the back and I'm the slowest one. And my, you know, what I've learned through running is, again, first time I ran London Marathon, I remember, you know, it was all set to run sub 3.30. I was in, you know, I looked like a gazelle. I was like super fit, come out the gates, first 13 miles, it's going easy. I'm looking at all the old 70-year-old runners laughing at them because they're so slow. Like, ah, look at you lot. Look at me, I'm killing it right now. Mile 21, I'm on the floor you know, swearing at my life, like, I can't go on. And then you see the, you know, the so-called slow runners who just maintain that steady pace coming past you and they give you that little wink of, like, they know something that you don't know. And that, you know, taught me so many lessons. But I always say to people, don't be afraid of running. Just do it your way. The only people who are impressed by running times are people who don't run. I've got a you know, a drawer full of marathon medals. I don't remember the times and no one comes to my house and is like, okay, Charlie, get your medals out. Show me your medals. <laughs> like, no one's doing that. And I know I'm not the fastest runner in the world, but I've inspired a lot of people around the world to start running. So it's not about speed or distance. And, you know, as you know, you always meet someone who can run quicker mm. and further than you. You know, when you, you know, when I first started running, the idea of running a marathon was like inconceivable. 26 miles. I wouldn't even drive 26 miles. <laughs> and then, you know, years later, you've got people, you know, I remember when running from London to Brighton was like the thing, and that's like about 56 miles. And then you've got people from the crew culture who run who are running from LA to Vegas. It's, it's, it's insane. It's, and, then, and then you know, then the next group are running from Canada to Chicago, like Toronto to Chicago. I'm like, you, know, you lot are nuts. And I remember there was like, I remember reading about this Australian dude who ran across Australia in gumboots. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. Was it was it a yeah, was it a recent yeah. thing or something old? Something old. <laughs> wasn't like and I could be getting wrong here. Like, no, it wasn't Cliff Young. I remember his name. Remember that? And I, look, I'm probably insulting the legend that is Cliff Young because I call it the Cl <laughs> Cliffy Young Shuffle. He just shuffled around yeah. everywhere, but he racked up yeah. some Ks. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember hearing about his story and just being like, yo, I've been to Australia. It's a big place. <laughs> I just ran across the country, like, you know. So suddenly I just realised it's kind of, it's not about the, the time and the distance. That's the thing that's the most off-putting thing. And then also... 
people are not used to being comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. So as soon as they start to feel uncomfortable, they start to panic. And actually, there's some beauty in that moment of being uncomfortable. That moment of fear, you can learn a lot about yourself. And if you can just hang out in that zone for a little bit more, interesting things will happen. You know, as you know, when like you're running, there are times when you go out on a run, especially now you're getting into the long runs, where you're like, you'll go for a stage where you just feel absolutely horrible. But you tough it out, and then suddenly it's like, man, this is easy. Like suddenly you feel really great again. Well, you, it's something you get used to. It's like sometimes yeah. the hardest on a thirty k run, as far as I've gone. So I've got the measure. The hardest part is some of the first five k's, or yeah. you know, five till ten. But now I've done it regularly. I know that I'll get to my sweet spot. I'll get there. Yeah. I just need to hang. So you, you drop back yeah. a little bit and you, you yeah. slow down. But yeah. Yeah. Mate, there's a there's a lot of very wise analogies in there. Yeah, and I, I think a, the listeners are going to take a, a whole lot out of that. And one thing I say for people who are training for marathons in particular, and this is the reason what you know, I, I like prefer running outside than I do running on the treadmill. But treadmill comes in really handy when you're marathon training because what you can do, say for example, if it's with a 30k, is kind of start dividing that up into segments so you might go out and be like right first 5k easy and then you know from 5k to 10k we're gonna you know maybe we're gonna run that gotta be fast then from 10k to 20k you know we're gonna run it's gonna be a hill session and so what you just start doing is you start looking at your because that's the one thing that never really prepared, I never really kind of clocked with running, particularly marathons. I never looked at the course of London Marathon when I first ran my first marathon. So I didn't really understand elevation or emotion. So the thing about marathon running is, you know, it's not flat all the way around. And it's a journey that goes up and down and has high points and low points. And it's very, you know, when you run on a treadmill, it's a bit, sometimes a bit easier to recreate the feeling of running a marathon. Mm. And I always say to people, it's kind of, you know, I remember when Matt Mantanchi was, was training for the marathon, I made her do like a 16 mile treadmill session. And she was cursing me like while she was doing it. But then, you know, come marathon day, she was like, that was really, really handy. Because I know, even when, I, like, when you run New York Marathon, there were sections where you go from it being like intense crowd support to absolutely nothing. Literally, you turn the corner and there's no one there. <laughs> you suddenly, like, your emotions start to play with you. But actually kind of practicing this kind of stuff beforehand. So my advice to you is look at the course and, you know, really try and study the course so that your body is ready for what the course is going to give you. Wise words, mate. I, uh, I'll, I'll do that. I think there's a couple of loops on the on the Melbourne one, but I will have a bit of a bit of a closer yeah, a look. look for it and have, be have uh, it. be chatting to uh, to my man uh, uh, Maddie Willox tomorrow morning uh, as well. We uh, yeah, I caught up with him uh, yeah earlier today. So yeah. Now, all right, one uh, one last. Oh, actually, I don't, and I'm just curious, no, purely because I want to see. Do you have yeah. just speaking of like runners? 
what's your favorite pair of, of runners? Like, do you have, have a pair like there or ones that yeah. you're on? Like, what do you, uh, yeah, what are your, I your do. Favorite ones to roll um, my favorite shoes to run in of all time was the Lunar Racer, the Nike Lunar Racer. That was a bit like a racing flat shoe. Yep. And I really liked it because it was, um, it was kind of a bit lifestyle as well as being kind of a great running shoe and it was light. That was my, you know, my favorite, my favorite shoe, either that or there was a Nike HTM shoe that actually was like a, one of the first flying shoes that they ever did. Yep. Which everyone else was like camping out overnight for, and I was running marathons in them. I was like, these, you know, I've still got a pair of them now. They've got holes in the front. And it's kind of, I like to just pull them out on the sneaker kids. They're like, you wore the shoes. Yep. Like, yeah, bro. I, I ran some marathons in these. I clutched some miles in these. <laughs> um, I'm kind of not in love with running shoes at the moment. I'm not a big, necessarily big fan of the way the technology has gone because I do find them a bit kind of clumpy. Mm. You know, the current shoes, shoes available, a bit clumpy. Um, but yeah, you know, it's kind of, um, I think I'm running an Adidas stuff at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, um, some, some beasts. Obviously, we're waiting for the thing that we can't talk about to happen. Oh, yes. When it yes. starts happening. Yes. So, and then, you yeah. know, then we can see what's going on there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But, um, but yeah, you know, um, I've got loads of running shoes. And I, I generally, amongst the my partners kind of discussed, I generally keep a lot of my old running shoes for memories. Yeah, oh, that's that's why I'm doing like with these ones. I'm just going to keep one yeah. and you know find a way to artfully yeah. store them because yeah, you need need a place to store them all as well. What's yeah. what's your of sneakers in general? What's your what's your favorite pair? I am. Uh, it's got to be Air Jordan Freeze, Freeze Fours or Fives. Yeah, those are my you know ultimate shoes, and I would say, wow. Probably Jordan Freeze, I think, are my favourites. Nice, mate. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Jordan man, definitely, 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 definitely. And I've still got, you know, original pairs from the 80s sitting in boxes, crumbling uh, away. Oh, so like never worn? Never worn. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Mate. I'm that, I'm that guy. I got really into, I mean, I was all, I got really into sneaker collecting as a kid. Really, really, really into it like obsessive and then obviously I was on Moax and when I was you know when you start doing music and you start traveling around the world then you start picking stuff up on your travels yeah I remember going to Australia got some great trainers in Australia you know mm. even um oh, is there one with like a kangaroo on the side like like, like runners yeah I can't remember what they were called but I remember when we came to Australia for the first time there was like an Australian kind of trainer that we only ever saw in Australia. We were like, oh man, that is really super fresh. Yeah, right. I have to I have to look into that for you, mate. I retired. I had to retire from this whole sneaker game thing. Now I'm a, like a I'm a converse of Vans man now. Oh okay. Just keeping it a bit uh, a bit more simple. I had to retire. Well one, you know what I realize once I start getting really into yoga is how much the wearing of sneakers every day can mash up your feet. Mm. Um, and so actually giving your feet a rest, you know, whether you're wearing some kind of barefoot minimal shoe one day a week or something like that, just to kind of give your toes and your feet a rest 
was really important. And then actually, I think for me, what really killed it is how hard it became to actually get the pairs that you wanted to get. Mm. Yeah. I'm not queuing up. Sorry, <laughs> man, I can't. I'm not queuing. I'm not camping overnight. And I don't necessarily want to play three times the retail value mm. for something. And it's a young person's game. Yeah. I think I'm I think at what, the, the end of it. Yeah, you're right. Like yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I've happened to know some people who work at some places. They can get me the access to some, but I'm also, yeah, I'm not, I don't need to have the, the, the latest yeah. and greatest ones. Like I thought the coolest thing I got in the last couple of years was a pair of, ultra boost uh, game of thrones ones and stuff and they yeah, weren't yeah, particularly yeah, rare and then i wasn't going to wear them and then my mate who got a pair of them goes why aren't you going to wear them bro because some of that's why you wear them someone goes oh man dope sneakers i'm like that's yeah, yeah, yes yeah. that's yeah you know, yeah yeah i think um you know when <laughs> like i think when you know when sancha came into my life and she saw, saw my sneaker room and she was just like Hold on a minute. So you've had these sneakers in a in a box for 25 years and you're not going to wear them. I'm like, yo, no, babe, but you don't understand. And we took the we took the <laughs> shoes out of the box and, and the, the heel fell off in my hand. <laughs> it's like, and I was like, oh. And that's when I started kind of, I was like, you know what, I need to come out of this world. This is too much. This is kind of this doesn't make sense because invariably, with anyone who's a collector of anything, you get to a point where the collection starts to rule your life. Mm. whether it starts taking up so much space in your life and then it's just stuff you know and I roll with people who are like you know they're like oh yeah my sneaker collection is really small I've got 3,000 pairs and you go around the house and it's just like that's all there is it's just the sneaks in the bedroom in the bathroom in the kitchen in the sink <laughs> it's like the whole thing is dominated by sneaker boxes it's just like actually that's not necessarily a life as you start to get older and different things become a priority. I think for myself, like many people, you get into sneaker culture because it's a way of earning respect. Mm. Whether it's respecting your neighborhood or respect from people you don't know. But I'm really suspicious of people who only will respect me because of what's on my feet. You know, there are people that you meet, you kind of, they shake your hand, they look at your feet to see what you're wearing. And then yeah. that determines, you know, how much respect they give you. It's a bit like when you go, you know, I always say to my, you know, to the kids I work with, it's like the richest people I've ever met in the world, you would never know mm. because they're not wearing the most expensive watch. They're wearing a plastic watch. And you'd have an absolute, and they don't talk about money. They're not wearing no big gold. They're not driving some super flash car. But when you finally do get to see how they live, it's on such a next level mm. that it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's like, you know, it's like when you hang out with people who've got old time money, you know, that old time money as opposed to new money, old time Generational money wealth. Yeah. Generational wealth where it's kind of, even the cutlery that you're eating with is worth more than your house. <laughs> you know, they got art around the wall where you're just like, no, is that original Basquet or is that a print? You know, and, it, and it's, they're not, they're not even talking about it. They're not like, and here's my blah, blah, blah painting. And my, they're not talking about any of the stuff. It's just there. And you know it's real. Yeah. And that was a real thing for me where I realised, like, you know, for many of us, it's kind of, you know, the way we spend, you know, the type of things we desire is very much determined on impressing other people. 
you know, and what, what you do know is like, you know, I was like with a guy yesterday who's got like, you know, he's got a Ferrari. It's not very comfortable to drive. Mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It looks good, but it's not a very comfortable drive. So actually, yeah, I think, it, you know, my a lot of my perceptions on life kind of started to change and getting out of the sneaker game was one of the, you know, one of the best things I ever did. I feel like I got some bad advice from a from a woman earlier in my life because this is when I was maybe 18, 19, just moved to the yeah. city. And I was like, you know, how, how do I go about, you know, impressing a girl? And she goes, look, she goes, have good shoes. She goes, you can be ugly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can be yeah, yeah, yeah. dressed like shit. But if you've got decent shoes, you're halfway there. You know, then yeah, you've got yeah, a bit yeah. of, I was like, yeah. all right. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose yeah. there's a point where it can go, uh, go too far. Well, I think the thing about when you collect, particularly sneakers, is when I started getting trolled on Instagram by 15-year-olds, I realised, you know what? I'm out of this game now. I found myself arguing about the authenticity <laughs> of a pair of Air Jordans that I had because mine were an original pair, but and they were but they were slightly different from the reissue. And this kid had only ever seen the reissue. So he's like, they're fake on my page. Like, the shoes are fake, man, fake. I'm like, bruv, these are the like these shoes are older than you like two times over. What are you talking about? No, man, they're fake. And then I was like, I'm arguing with a 15-year-old kid that I don't know, and I'm a grown man. <laughs> This has got to stop. I'm out of the game. I'm retired. I'm done. Uh, you're right. Yeah. It's and the thing that is is funny, like to as you get a bit older, and I speak for myself here, like I'm seeing shoes now that are super trendy as like kids used to kick the footy in those and like trash them back in the day. And now they're starting at like five hundred yeah, bucks yeah, a pair, thousand dollars a yeah. pair. It's like they've they've come yeah. back in. And unfortunately, yeah. my dad threw out a lot of his sneakers some old like asic stuff and some old puma ones or yeah. the old adidas roams and stuff don't see them anymore and you don't see them anymore i was like yeah. i just i i realized a little bit too late that they were probably worth uh, worth keeping but yeah yeah some some good advice there and before before we go mate speaking of advice and I feel there's yeah. a million other things that we could talk about. We'll save that for part two. I want to talk a lot more yeah. about, you know, music and this and that, and we'll save that for yeah. when we're in person. And if you come down here and we'll roll the arm over yeah. playing a bit of cricket or I'll come for a run with you in yeah. London. Yeah. Speaking of advice, well, not so much advice, but what are, what are Charlie Dark's core values? Oh, Charlie Dark's core values. Well, my missus has just walked in the door, so I would say emptying the dishwasher every night is really important. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> <Cameo>. uh, <laughs> uh, my core values, I would say, um, be nice to people. Is being nice to people is really important. Um, honesty, loyalty, and respect. In fact, honesty, loyalty, respect are kind of like you know really at the heart of what I'm I'm about. And helping people to be the best they can be, you know. In fact, scrap all of that. My core value is this. If you do well, I do well, and we both do well together. So, actually, you know, I like helping people to do well. I have no qualms about basically helping someone else to be the best that they can be because I have this feeling that it comes back to you at some point. And, you know, that's my, you know, you know, that's my philosophy is, is 
strictly good vibes only at all times. That's what I'm about. I spent a large amount of my life kind of scowling, being really angry with the world and walking around with big chips on my shoulders and a load of attitude on my face. Doesn't serve me at all. And so actually when I think, when I just started to just kind of, this idea of like just relaxing a little more, learning how to smile was a really important thing for me. And um, yeah, just being kind of, not being, a, not being afraid to show my vulnerability as well. That was really important for me. You don't have to be super alpha male 24 seven. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't serve you. Mate, that's, I love it. That's bloody well <laughs> said. I knew you'd have some, uh, some good little nuggets there, mate. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Ren. Um, Charlie Dark, thank you so much for, for giving up your time to, to be on this podcast. You're, no you're worries, an inspiring man. man. You're a trailblazer. Got a lot of love for you, and I can't Thank wait to, to catch up with you uh, again uh, in person. We need to catch up in person because you've got to explain to me Aussie rules football. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, look, I mean, maybe yeah. I'll, uh, I'll organise uh, to get a footy over your way beforehand so you can uh, get a bit of a feel for it and uh, you know, get the dynamics and we'll, uh, we'll have a kick. Yeah, yeah. Well, just send me some YouTube videos. I just, I just, <laughs> I just think it's a really fascinating sport and it looks really exciting but i don't understand the rules deal you send me the the west indies cricket in the uk video i'll send yeah, you some aussie youtube stuff i will do most definitely beautiful thank you awesome, again uh, for your time my no friend worries, really man. appreciate it this has been great and we'll uh, we'll talk soon yeah definitely take care man enjoy the marathon training thanks very much mate take care see you later brother take care peace out